I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. Shortly after his wife died, George Carlin sat down and wrote these thoughts. He said, the paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings, but shorter tempers. Wider freeways, but narrower viewpoints. We spend more, but have less. We buy more, enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families. More conveniences, but less time. We have more degrees, but less sense. More knowledge, but less judgment. More experts, yet more problems. More medicine, but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get up too tired, read too little, watch TV too much, and pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions, but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. We've learned how to make a living, but not a life. We've added years to life, not life to years. We've been all the way to the moon and back, but have trouble crossing the street to meet a new neighbor. We conquered outer space, but not inner space. We've done larger things, but not better things. We've cleaned up the air, but polluted our souls. We've conquered the atom, but not our prejudice. We write more, but learn less. We plan more, but accomplish less. We've learned to rush, but not to wait. We build more computers to hold more information, to produce more copies than ever, but we communicate less and less. These are the times of fast foods and slow digestion, big men and small character, steep profits and shallow relationships. That's true, isn't it? We live in a day when everything is bigger and taller and better except our relationships. And Paul wrote the last half of Romans chapter 12 to let us know that for the Christian, shallow relationships just won't do. The analogy of the church in verse 4 is a body with many members operating in unity and diversity and interdependence. But the body won't operate if we don't get along. And so after addressing our relationship to God in verses 1 and 2, that we are to be a living sacrifice, and after addressing our relationship to ourselves in verses 3 to 8, that is, we are to be who we are called to be in the body of Christ, Paul now addresses our relationship to others in verses 9 to 21. And you can divide these verses into two sections because in verses 9 to 16, he deals with our relationship with believers. Notice verse 10, be devoted to one another. Give preference to one another. 
Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints. Verse 18, be of the same mind toward one another. This is one another. This is our relationship to believers. And then in verses 17 to 21, he deals with our relationship with unbelievers. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so he's covering the whole gamut of relationships in this passage. Now in these verses, I count 23 brief, straightforward injunctions. These are general exhortations that apply to each one of us, no matter what our gift may be. And it tells us how we are to relate to each other. How we're to have relationships in this life. Now, I've grouped these exhortations into five overarching directives or five traits that are to characterize my life if I'm to have right relationships. Number one is be authentic in verses 9 and 10. He starts out in verse 9 by saying, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, that word hypocrisy comes from the Greek stage. In a Greek play, they had many parts. They often had few actors. And so the way they compensated for that was that the actors wore masks. And the actors came to be known as hypocrites. Every time they wanted to change roles, they just went backstage and exchanged masks. And so that word became, began to be used of someone in life who is not what he appears to be. Someone who is impersonating someone else. Someone who is pretending. And so Paul is saying, in the area of relationships, in the area of love, take your mask off. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, we all know how hypocritical love works. That's when you say, hello, brother, God bless you, how are you? It's so wonderful to see you. And then he walks away and you roll your eyes. Hypocritical love. That's why the phrase I don't like very much is that phrase sometimes we use, I love you in the Lord. I'm bothered by that phrase. Because how do you interpret that phrase? I love you in the Lord, but personally, I can't stand you. See, Paul says, let our love be without hypocrisy, without masks. In the Christian life, there's no place for phony love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so love is the number one characteristic of a believer. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, Paul says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. I've got the love of God inside of me. Now the question is, how do I get the love of God inside of me to flow out to other people? 
And I think the answer is in verses 1 and 2. The love of God flows out through a living sacrifice. The love of God will flow out of the life of one who has died to self because it's a selfless love. It's a sincere love. It's a love that has no alternative, ulterior motive. It's a love that isn't worried about play acting. You see, this tells me, right at the beginning of relationships, Paul's talking about love. This tells me that God will not put up with pseudo-relationships. He won't put up with them with him, and he won't put up with them when we try to have them with each other. God wants us to do the hard work of caring for one another, of trying to understand one another, of working through the misunderstandings with one another, of learning to accept and appreciate the uniquenesses of one another so that our love is real. Free from hypocrisy, free from deceit, free from the masks, free from the pretense, authentic. God doesn't want His church to be a plastic, pseudo community. He wants the reality of love. You know, if there was one sin that Jesus would not put up with, it was hypocrisy. He hung out with notorious sinners, but he had no time for the hypocrite. And so if the worst sin is hypocrisy, and the highest virtue is love, then to put those two together is unthinkable. Because it's lying affection. It's really disguised hate. It's Judas coming to Jesus and betraying him with a kiss. And so... Paul starts out this section on relationship by saying, take off your mask and be authentic. And then in the rest of verse 9, he says, abhor what is evil, cleave to what is good. Now, too often times we get those two reversed. We cling to that which is evil. We have our secret little sin in that secret little part of our heart and we don't want to let go of it. What are you clinging to today? What is your guilty pleasure that you're hanging on to that you don't want to let go of? See, Paul says, if you're going to have right relationships, you've got to let go. But letting go is just the beginning. He goes on to say, you are to abhor it. You are to hate it. You see, I'm not only to love what God loves, I am to hate what God hates. You say, well, what does God hate? Well, the writer of Proverbs gives us a list in Proverbs 6.16. He says there are seven things that the Lord hates. Here they are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, 
hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, one who spreads strife among brothers. Now that sounds like an ad for a soap opera, doesn't it? Or the next hit movie. God hates sin, and we are to hate sin as well. And you can't hate sin if you're letting it entertain you. You see, we're not only to avoid sin, and we're not only to fear its consequences, we are to hate the sin itself. Jude verse 23 says we are to hate even the garment polluted by sin. Not just hate the sin itself, but hate anything that's associated with that sin in our lives. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that I have no problem hating sin in your life. I hate it. I see it, I hate it, I think, why can't you see that? Why don't you get rid of that in your life? Well, see, the application here goes far beyond that. The application is to hate sin in my life. And then the positive side of this phrase is cleave to what is good. That word cleave is the word used in the marriage bond. It's that word to be stuck together, to be glued to that which is good. And so he says, hate what is evil and be lovingly devoted to what is good. Now this phrase is given to us in the context of love. Because right before this phrase he talks about love and right after this phrase he talks about love. You see that? In verse 9 he says, let love be without hypocrisy right before. And then right after he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So he's given this to us in the context of love, which tells me something. It tells me that your attitude towards sin will affect your attitude toward other people. You say, well, I would like to love other people more. Well, then start hating that sin in your own life and you will allow the love of God to flow through you. See, the love of God flows through a pure heart. And so Paul is saying, be authentic. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now there are four Greek words for love. There's agape, phileo, storge, and eros. Agape is unconditional love. Phileo is friendship love. Storge is family love. Eros is erotic love. Eros is never used in the Bible. So there's only three Greek words for love used in the Bible. What I find interesting is that all three are used in verses 9 and 10. The word in verse 9 for love is agape. And then when we come to verse 10 in this phrase, it's a very interesting phrase because The word for brotherly love is the Greek word you already know, Philadelphia. Phileo, love, Delphos, brother, it's brotherly love. But what's interesting here is that this phrase, be devoted, at the beginning of verse 10, is the Greek word 
philae storge. It's taking two words for love and putting them together. The word philos, love, and the word storge, love. And what he's saying here is, it's a hard phrase to translate, but what he's saying is, be family in your relationship together. These are words for family love. You see, our relationship to other people in the body of Christ is not just associations. We are family. My aunt and uncle are here from Canada. When I saw my aunt, I gave her a hug. Because that's what families do. And I think he's saying to us, be affectionate in your relationship with one another. You realize there are people in this body who tell me widows and such that they never get a hug any other time than Sunday morning. My exhortation would be make sure they get that hug. Show that family love in our relationship with each other. Be authentic. And then continuing in verse 10, he says, give preference to one another in honor. That word give preference means literally outdo each other. Outdo each other in showing honor, in expressing appreciation, in affirming one another. Say to somebody else, you're valuable, you're meaningful, you're important. Thank you for all that you do. Now, if you don't understand who you are in verse 3, you're going to be threatened by this exhortation. You see, it's only when I understand who I am in the presence of God and have genuine humility that I'm freed up to honor other people rather than trying to covet that honor for myself. I love it when you watch a sporting event and afterwards they interview the star of the game and he comes on and they want him to talk about himself and all he talks about is his teammates and how he couldn't do it without them. You see, that's what Paul is talking about here. Give honor to others. Be authentic. Second exhortation, general exhortation. The first is be authentic. The second is be vibrant in verses 11 and 12. Notice verse 11. He says, not lagging behind in diligence. Now, the King James says they're not slothful in business. That's one of the worst translations the King James ever had because this has nothing to do with the business world. He's saying here, not lagging behind, not dragging your feet in diligence, in zeal. Don't be lazy in zeal. Go all out. Go full throttle. Don't hold back. You know, most of us are not in danger of burning out. We're in danger of rusting out. For most of us, the exhortation in Galatians 6, 9, don't be weary in well-doing, sounds like a foreign language. We need this exhortation. Don't drag your feet when it comes to zeal. There's no room for lethargy in the Christian life. Be vibrant. And then he adds to that in verse 11, fervent in spirit. This is what Lane and Darla sang about. 
This word literally means to burn, to boil. Sometimes we say he's on fire for the Lord. That's what this phrase is talking about. See, the person who's on fire for the Lord should not be the exception. That should be the norm. That's the exhortation to all of us. Be on fire. Boil for God. You know, our word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, and those two Greek words are entheos, which means in God. Enthusiasm means to be in God. And so if you are in God, you should be enthusiastic. You see, a bored Christian is an insult to God. A bored Christian is a walking contradiction. Because if you are in God, you are enthusiastic. If you are in God, you are going to burn, you are going to boil with the flame that comes from Him. Be vibrant. And then he adds at the end of verse 11, serving the Lord. Now, if you're going to survive in your Christian service, you need to grasp this little phrase. Serving the Lord. Because although you may be serving men, and although the expression of your service may be in relationship to them, ultimately you are serving the Lord. You need to understand this, because there's going to be times when you're serving other people, and nobody's applauding. Nobody seems to be appreciating what you're doing. Nobody's patting you on the back. How do you keep going? You realize, even though I'm serving men, ultimately, I'm serving the Lord. Mother Teresa worked in Calcutta, literally in a garbage heap in Calcutta, most of her life. It stunk, it was filthy. Leighton Ford once asked her, how do you work under these conditions and keep your joy? And her response was, we do our work for the Lord and with the Lord and to the Lord. We are serving the Lord. And then verse 12 adds, rejoicing in hope. You know, some of the most long-faced people I know claim to be Christians. Some of the most long-faced people I know claim to have hope. But listen, real hope brings real joy. And so Paul says rejoice. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. They may be tough. But you can rejoice in your hope. You see, if you have hope, of an eternal home, no matter how dark the day may be, you can rejoice. Be vibrant. And then continuing in verse 12, he says, persevering in tribulation. Back in Romans 8.18, he said, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you ought to be able to persevere. You ought to be able to be patient. You ought to be able to endure. And you say, well, wh 
Why does he bring up tribulation in the middle of this passage about relationships? Well, because some of your biggest tribulations are people. And so he says, in the midst of tribulations, oftentimes that come in conflict with people, you are to rejoice in hope and you are to endure. You're to be patient in those relationships. And then he adds this at the end of verse 12, devoted to prayer. Verse 12 tells me you're to be positive, rejoicing. You're to be patient in the tough times and you're to be prayerful. You're to be devoted to prayer. What are you devoted to? Say, well, I'm devoted to my job, my my family, Cardinal baseball. Paul says, be devoted to prayer. You see, it's through prayer that I really fix my hope on the future promises of God, which allows me to rejoice and endure. Are you having trouble handling life? Devote yourself to prayer. Have you got somebody in your life who's a tribulation, a trial for you? Put them on your prayer list. Be devoted to prayer. Let me ask you something. Do these terms describe your service for the Lord and your relationships with others? Zealous, boiling, rejoicing, persevering, constantly praying? See, Paul is saying, be vibrant. Be authentic. Be vibrant. Thirdly, be practical in verses 13 to 16. You see, my feelings of love won't accomplish much by themselves unless they're expressed in tangible ways. Intentions without actions are deceptions. And so in verses 13 to 16, Paul is saying, put some feet on your feelings. Express your love practically. Communicate some actions that express your love in relationships. And he gives us some ideas of things we can do. Verse 13, he says, contributing to the needs of the saints. See, if you know of somebody in our body who has a need, you don't have to ask an elder. You don't have to pray about it. You don't need to take a walk in the woods and think about it. If you know about somebody who has a need and you have the wherewithal to meet that need, Paul's saying, meet the need. See, that's love. Show it. Be practical. And then continuing in verse 13, he says, practicing hospitality. Now, I've talked a lot about Greek words. This is another one that's worth noting. This Greek word is philexenos. Phileo love, xenos means strangers. So this word hospitality means loving strangers. And this phrase literally means pursue strangers in order to show them love. Go after people that you don't know just to love on them. Now, you can practice that every Sunday morning here because there are always people who come in here 
that you don't know. So you have the opportunity to go up and meet them and greet them and love them. That's hospitality. I saw a survey recently to try to figure out what is it about churches that makes them grow. And they studied churches from all different denominations and all different styles. And the one common denominator that they found among all growing churches was an atmosphere of love. Paul says, practice hospitality. Jesus did that. Jesus loved hospitality. That's why you always see him sitting at the table fellowshipping with people. He sat at the table so much talking to people that he was accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber, whatever that is. And he was always at the table. He loved hospitality. And Paul says we are to practice hospitality as well. You see, I think this really captures the nature of God's love. Because this is love for people that don't know you. And at one time, you were a stranger to God, and he loved you and drew you in and made you his child. That's love. And that's the love he's put inside of you. And so every time you express love to a stranger, you're really bringing glory to God because that's not your love. That's God's love. Every time you show hospitality, every time you invite somebody over, every time you fix a meal, every time you write a card of encouragement to someone, every time you change somebody's tire, every time you go out of your way to love some other person, that's worship. It's just like singing, How Great Thou Art. You're expressing the glory of God in loving strangers. Practice hospitality. And then verse 14, we'll come back to in a moment, but look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We are to... Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Jesus did that. His first miracle was where? At a wedding. His last miracle, except for his resurrection, was at a funeral. So Jesus went to weddings and funerals. He laughed with people who laughed. He cried with people who cried. And we're to do the same. You know, I think in this exhortation, the hardest part for us is rejoicing with those who rejoice. Sometimes we find it easy to weep with people. They, they got to hurt. We're, we feel sorry. We feel that sympathy. But when they're rejoicing, sometimes it's a little harder. You know, if somebody gets a promotion and I've just gotten a demotion, it's hard for me to be excited about that. If they just got a raise and I just got a reduction of pay, Hard for me to rejoice. If, if I've been praying to have a baby and haven't been able to have a baby, or I've just lost a baby and somebody else has a baby, it's hard for me to rejoice with that other person because envy gets in the way sometimes. And Paul says you are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And then notice verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own 
estimation. He says we're to be of the same mind. Now, he's not talking about the same mind politically. Not talking about the same IQ, same mind intellectually. He's talking about us having the same mind spiritually. See, he's saying that we're to have that renewed mind that he talked about in verse 2. And that's why right after saying we're to have the same mind, he says it's not to be haughty. It's not to be conceited. But I am to associate with the lowly. Chuck Swindoll tells about a group of kids who built a clubhouse. And when they had finished their clubhouse, they decided that they needed some rules. And so they came up with three rules. Rule number one, nobody act big. Rule number two, nobody act small. Rule number three, everybody act medium. That's not bad theology. You know, they practiced this in very tangible ways in the early church. Because in the early church, they greeted each other with a holy kiss. That exhortation is given to us five times in the New Testament. We seem to ignore it. It wasn't more of a hug than a kiss. They kind of kissed over the shoulder, but they, they greeted each other with a hug. And they also washed each other's feet in the early church. It was a custom. And the beauty of that was that you had masters and slaves in the church. Monday through Friday, they were master and slave. They came into the church, and the master oftentimes washed the feet of the slave. A beautiful expression of the humility of this relationship, associating with the lowly. Paul is saying, be practical. And then fourthly, be peaceable. And that's in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, in the body of Christ, in the church, and at work, and in your neighborhood, friction is inevitable. You can expect it. And relational breakdowns are inevitable. And misunderstandings with people are inevitable. Paul's not concerned about that. What he's concerned about here is what you do when those breakdowns occur. What do you do when a relationship breaks down with another person? You know, it's a lot easier to be a rumorer than a reconciler. It's a lot easier to be a sniper than it is to set up peace talks. Paul says here, we are to be peacemakers. See, we're family. We're going to spend eternity together. Take a look down the road. Those faces you are going to see for infinity. And so if you've got a, a, a problem with somebody, Paul is saying, be a peacemaker. Reconcile that relationship. These are eternal relationships that we enjoy. And it's inevitable in this life that you're going to get some bumps and bruises now and then. Your feelings are going to get hurt now and then. People are going to let you down now and then. You're going to receive some troubling information about other people now and then. But when it happens, 
Don't stew. Don't brew. Don't snipe. Don't slander. Don't create division. Don't spread strife. Paul says you be a peacemaker. Go to that individual and reconcile that relationship. You see, people who love God protect unity. Now let me add to that. Sometimes you can go to another person and you can apologize and you can forgive and you can reconcile and they're still angry. And Paul recognizes that because notice what he says in verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. See, it takes two to make peace. And so you're not always assured that that's going to be the outcome. But Paul's exhortation is, do everything you can possibly do to be peaceable. And then the fifth general trait of people who have right relationships is be radical. Be radical. Look back at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Look at verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now these ideas are straight out of the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said there, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, do what? Turn the other cheek as well. I want to suggest to you that this is radical relationship. This runs counterculture to everything we're taught today. Everything we see around us today. This is radical relationship. Because everything in my flesh says, when I am wronged, I want to get even. When somebody cuts me off in traffic, I want to honk my horn. I want to speed up. I'd like to run them off the road. I want to get even. When I'm coming down the road at night, somebody's got their brights on. I say, you like bright lights? I'll show you bright lights. (laughs) You're in a basketball game. Somebody gives you an elbow. You're a real spiritual guy, so that verse comes to mind. Give, and it shall be given unto you. (laughs) Kind of take it out of context. We kind of like the World Wrestling Federation philosophy. Vengeance is mine, says the Hulkster. Paul says, when someone does evil to you, don't return it. And don't curse. And don't take your own revenge. But what I find interesting is, he also says, don't don't just sit there and fume. You can do something. Verse 14 says, you can bless them. That's another Greek word. It's the Greek word, eulogize. It's what we do at funerals. Speak well of them. When they curse you, speak well of them. 
And not only that, but look at verse 20. He says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. You say, well, what good will that do? Paul says it will heap burning coals on his head. Now, some people take that literally. Because in the first century, a fire was very important. You had to have one in your home. You had to have it for warmth. You had to have it to cook. So you had to have a fire all the time. If your fire went out, they didn't have matches. So if your fire went out, you had to go to another person who had a fire and take some coals from their fire to start your fire, and they often carried it on their head. So, so some say this is the idea that you're giving your enemy this very important thing, coals. You're giving him more than he needs, and you're dumping it on his head. Personally, I don't take it that way. Because I don't think he's talking literally here. I think he's talking figuratively here. And the reason I say that is because if you look at verse 21, he goes on to say, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, he's saying what you do to your enemy when you show kindness, when you feed him when he's hungry and give him water when he's thirsty, what you're doing is you're overcoming him. Now, how does that overcome him? Well, think about it. Have you ever been especially obnoxious and rude to somebody and you were looking for a fight? You were ready for a fight. You wanted a fight. And instead of fighting, they showed you kindness. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate to be overcome with kindness? You know, you're all ready to fight and instead, the closest thing to that is like heaping burning coals on your head. Someone called this the heap that melts the heart. It's what Jesus did on the cross. To those who were crucifying him, he responded, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. To the thief next to him who was cursing him, Jesus opened the gates to paradise. And the centurion stood there and watched all this, and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. See, that was Jesus' relationship to us. I think about Stephen, who was stoned to death in the early church. And while he was being stoned to death, he didn't, speak back. He didn't curse back. He didn't, he didn't seek vengeance on those that were stoning him to death. Instead, Stephen said to, to God, do not hold this sin against them. Now, I don't know how that impacted all the fellows that were there, but I know how it impacted one fellow there. His name was Saul, and he later became Paul, and he wrote this letter. See, I think what Paul is saying is the best way to eliminate an enemy is to make him a friend by kindness. Be radical. So those are the exhortations for relationships. What do you think? Pretty high standards for our interactions with one another. After reading this passage, one person said, it doesn't take much of a man to live this way. It takes all of him. And that's exactly right. You've got to go back to verses 1 and 2 and you've got to be that living sacrifice before the Lord if you're ever going to live out these kind of relationships 
with other people. If you're going to have relationships that are authentic and vibrant and practical and peaceable and radical. In closing the service today, I've asked Wendy to come up and sing a special this morning. I want you to listen to the words of this song. Just stay in your seats and listen. Because this song really expresses what it costs the Lord Jesus on the cross to have a relationship with you and me. And as you think about his relationship with you, I want you to think about how you can translate that into your relationship with other people. And as she's singing this morning, I'm going to ask those who are baptized, those who may want to join this morning, those who may be saying, I don't have a relationship right now with Jesus Christ, and I want that relationship. You come as she sings our closing response and prayer today.